Hey, welcome to another installment of The Scrum, the political podcast that we do here at WGBH News. I'm Adam Riley. A little while ago, a guy named Mike Connolly won a Democratic primary for state rep. He beat a longtime incumbent, Tim Toomey, in what a lot of people considered an upset. Since there's no Republican running, it's a foregone conclusion that Connolly is going to represent Somerville and Cambridge on Beacon Hill in the near future. But Mike Connolly isn't just a fresh political face. He's also an alum of Occupy Boston. And Connolly's win suggests that the energies that drove Occupy are now beginning to transform state politics. So we asked Mike to come by WGBH to talk about the Occupy effect, along with Nadim Mazin, another Occupy alum who's been a Cambridge City Councilor for a few years now. Take a listen. Did both of you, I have to ask at the outset, did you guys see that Occupy Wall Street, where are they now, retrospect yeah, in the New York Times? Today. Yeah, so we were both tagged. Yeah, we were tagged with that today. One of our friends, Nina, shared it with us. Did you, you didn't pop up in there, right? I mean, I sort of was scanning the photos quickly, looking for any names that might ring a bell. You two weren't actually featured in it, right? No, I, I we were in. I was in the Occupy Boston side. Right. I mean, uh, same with me. So right. I think right, right. that was focusing on Wall Street. Was it purely itself. shame on me for the the lack Zuccotti of Park? Yeah, yeah. What what? Uh, you know, that was the "There's no life outside of Manhattan" view. Right. Of course. Um, what's your sense of where the people who you were active with in Occupy Boston are today? I mean, if you were to put together a retrospective like that, what would it come up with? Uh, for my part, I, I felt like old, many of them gra- gravitated to the Bernie Sanders campaign for one piece. Um, yeah, pe- pe- people definitely are on the Bernie side of things. Maybe the Gary Johnson until they look up how libertarian he really is, and then that's scary to a lot of people who believe in so- social um, uh, government social projects. But the um, I think the main thing for me is that whenever I meet someone in um, – government and life in uh, enterprise, they've been affected in some way by occupying. They usually relate the story back. Uh, they believe in Warren and they believe that she got you know, some of her language and some of her framing there. And the, the opposite is true. The people from Occupy, I also find, are change agents all over the country. Well, actually, that's uh, leading into where I wanted to go, where, you know, admittedly, the analogy isn't perfect, but it does strike me, it has struck me, that the Bernie Sanders campaign was... Occupy gone mainstream. Um, But having said that, what are the possibilities for ex-Occupy candidates replicating your success outside of a place like Cambridge-Somerville? You know, I think the chances are probably pretty high. Um, I think getting proper voting um, methodologies and and really good get-out-the-vote for millennials is going to be important all over the country. When I say methodology, I mean, you know, a ranked-choice vote would let someone vote Jill Stein and then Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton would still would still win. She'd get all the number twos from those third So you're candidates. trying to bring Cambridge to the nation? Well, you know, I thought it was a bad idea because it's so complex, but then when I looked at it, the some of the nations with the most transparent and, and um, I would say, honorable elections are doing that, and I don't think the U.S. will survive without a, thir- a viable third party. Okay, a quick example for n- nations that are doing um, you know, the only thing that comes to mind, which is another thing we want to do, is that a couple of nations, especially new nations, are doing online voting. 
Um, and so I think it's going to be important to marry a lot of these aspects together and to kind of get over the hump of the both the technology and the policy difficulties of finding a better system. Um, the the other thing about getting millennials to vote is going to be pretty critical. Um, uh, millennials outnumber baby boomers uh, for the first time in, in, in voting age millennials, and uh, uh, we just aren't fully mobilized yet. It's going to be a huge sea change. I mean, no. this man was able to say democratic socialism and almost won the nomination. But it strikes me that one reason millennials don't vote as much is that because for a whole variety of reasons, people either don't get married or put off getting married, or maybe even more importantly, more significantly, um, aren't able to or put off buying a house, that those are traditional marriage and home ownership seem like things that traditionally root people in the body politic. Do you agree, disagree, or is there any time? Why don't we ask Mike, since he just... Won an election well, running on a sure, platform yeah. talking about the kind of things we're talking about here. Yeah, what did you hear in terms of what? Well, that, that's a great says. point about home ownership because certainly one of the things that it's a real challenge as a progressive yeah. candidate in Cambridge or Somerville is we just had our election on September 8th and so many people, their lease will be up on, on August 31st and they'll move out. So we had the experience of many hundreds of people we may have organized, got commitments to vote. And then what do you know? You find out their rent was increased and they had to leave the city. So um, real challenge around the the dates of elections and, and people who move um, in and out who are facing displacement because of the housing emergency that we're facing. Right and this now. isn't a local problem only, by the way. This is a pretty widespread problem. You go to D.C., Chicago. Of course, you go to San Francisco, L.A., Brooklyn. But there are places with lots of land to develop. And because people are generally only developing luxury, what they call market rate, but in today's market ends up being luxury for the upper class only, um, the laws of supply and demand break down. There's no middle or moderate income housing being made. Affordable housing is usually a very small slice. So what you're talking about with people not being able to feel rooted does not just have implications for get out the vote. It has implications for deep-seated social unrest. And I think for the two parties that are that are kind of vying for power right now, for either of them to <clears throat> remain viable, the kind of Occupy ethic of you need to take care of student loan debt, which surpassed credit card debt. You need to take care of affordable housing. You need to make sure banks and other speculators aren't owning these markets. Um, that's very basic stuff. One thing that, that Peter and I wanted to do here today was uh, sort of apologize to you in person because we both have to confess, and Peter, stop me if I overdo it here, but neither one of us was paying the attention to your race that we should have in retrospect. I think both Peter and I thought that the big hot race to watch in Cambridge was Pat Jalen and uh, Leland Chung, and you know we thought it was a proxy for the fight over charter schools. And lo and behold, she kicked his butt, and you were the one who ended up winning this, uh, to my eye, unexpected and noteworthy victory. So oh, well, forgive us because no, we blew no, it. No, no apologies are necessary, but, but I appreciate the, uh, the sentiment. Were um, most people who cover local politics sleeping on it the same way that Peter and I were, or were people – Wait, who, some people who covers local politics? Tell me who covers local politics, and I will find them and I will tell them things about housing. Well, give us a call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we occasionally do. In theory, in theory, we do. We'd like to think that we do. But did, sure. did, did well, uh, I mean, most it, people miss it? Do you think? 
I think that that's probably fair to say. I mean, it it, it wasn't mentioned in the Boston Globe. Um, well, but, we didn't mention it, but um, wasn't wasn't mentioned here. Of course, you could be forgiven because it it is so rare that a challenger actually wins a primary. I think you could check the math. I think there may have been like fifty seven incumbents up for reelection in the primary with contested races, and I believe only two candidates won statewide. So it, it does not happen often. I think two-thirds of all House seats um, or two-thirds of all legislative seats have no contest whatsoever uh, in this cycle. So um, certainly there there isn't enough uh, small-D democracy taking place in the legislative level. Um, and I, I was also quite interested in the Senator Jalen Leland Chung race as well. I, I feel like we kind of saw that coming on the ground. We saw tremendous support uh, for Senator Jalen in Somerville, so wasn't terribly surprised by that outcome. What was it about your race that let you do what people tend not to do and unseat a longtime Beacon Hill incumbent? Great question. Uh, we We focused on the voters. You know, I think we had a philosophy in the campaign, and that philosophy was that the voters decide the election, so... Um, you know, things like press coverage are great. Things like endorsements are great. But day in, day out, we had a focus of, you know, the, these are the voters. They will be deciding the election on Election Day. And our job um, as a campaign, my job as a candidate, is on a daily basis to be out there connecting directly with the voters who will decide the election. And so we started uh, that work all the way back in March. I started knocking on doors um, I have been very involved in the community for a number of years. I've been working with um, other folks like like Nadim, who's sitting right here to my right. I could call you Councillor Mazin, maybe. Please, call please you, don't. Call <laughs> you Nadim. Um, but, um, you know, so I've been very involved. I, I worked uh, in Cambridge City Hall as an aide to the city council. Uh, I've helped elect other people uh, to the state house, so I've seen how campaigns work. So... Certainly, in, in keeping with the theme of this conversation, um, you know, I think it's important to get that experience of seeing how campaigns work. I also had uh, a tremendous coalition of of supporters. We we received endorsements from from Nadim, from from other members of the Cambridge City Council. Um, my campaign was endorsed by the Sierra Club, by the National Organization for Women. Uh, by Mass Alliance, by NARAL Pro-Choice Massachusetts. By our revolution, right? The Bernie Sanders. By our, by our revolution. That was really an incredible moment. Um, I was active in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, I was out actually knocking on doors in East Somerville, and I got an email at like 6.30 p.m., and it, and it said, get down to Redbones. There's a Our Revolution live stream, and you're going to be endorsed um, after Bernie Sanders gives a, a live stream presentation. So um, I'm glad they sent me that email because I had a chance to <laughs> go home and put on a clean shirt. And uh, <laughs> Did you get anything to eat at Redbones? <laughs> uh, you know, that's one of the, the worst parts about being a candidate. You go to these great places and you never have time to eat. So <laughs> Can I, I just say something about Mike's sure. success? There's, there's two things I want to say about Mike's success. One is that Mike is meeting everybody. And that's not something that's likely to stop when he gets in office. He's known for canvassing an amount that would drive anyone else insane. I like canvassing. I go out and I meet people. I meet them while I'm doing other things. Mike just takes extra time and canvasses all the time. Even when he's not running for things, he seems to be canvassing all the time for someone or for something he believes in. That type of organic and authentic look 
and and not just the look, obviously the actual feel and the actual um, uh, energy and, and sincerity behind it is super meaningful. The other thing, and I, I won't relate this to, to us helping him, I'll more relate it to him helping us. When I ran for council, it was just after Mike's last bid for state rep where he raised no money and had all these incredible pledges and he still came close. I feel he came close for what he raised. No, I remember when Chris Ferrone wrote about that for the Phoenix. Um, uh, I, I remember thinking, well, this will be interesting to see how it turns out, The you know, the absolutely no money. And I was – I clocked an eyebrow. Mike, you remind know, us, how close, how close did you come? Oh, we, we, we achieved about 26% of the vote or so. There, there was a Republican in the race. He, he earned about 5% of the vote and uh, – so certainly we we did a better percentage this time around. Yeah. But but, but what, what what happened is that when I was running, I was like, this guy Mike met a ton of people. And he is a meaningful leader in this like post-occupy, let's get working um, kind of landscape. And when he was able to give his endorsement, not just to me, but also to Dennis Carlone, who also won, it created – for me, an ability to to get the I won by six votes, right? So Mike definitely pushed me over the top. Everyone put just pushed me over the top, but it created an energy on council where there was a new flavor, a new alternative, and and it was very collaborative. I think, and we I don't think we would have done that without him. And maybe in the same way, Cambridge is becoming a hotbed of this organizing mentality, and a whole new group of people are now added to the former organizers to reach a critical mass. Hey, Mike and the dean. Focus on one, two, or three issues, you know, sort of statewide or eastern Massachusetts or greater Cambridge and Boston. What are the top one, two, or three priorities? I don't know whether you agree or not, go personally, but, you know. I bet we agree. And, sure. I, and I'd say, but for example, by the way, that, that the top couple are probably going to be either our problems today for America or are about to be problems for the whole country. So we can generalize pretty broadly. And I think we can agree that by census, by city census, the number one issue is affordable housing and the diversity and economic robustness that comes with such clearly bifurcated housing availability, only a little bit of affordability and then luxury and almost nothing in between. And we can both talk at end uh, about that. Oh, yeah. We've we've both been talking about that issue and, and working on that issue for a while. And um, I'd put in at number two, uh, closely related, hopefully you'll agree, uh, public transportation, mm-hmm. transit in general. Um, that's it, it. It's related to housing. So, you know, so, so much. I mean, our failure to invest in public transit, our failure to expand the MBTA to improve commuter rail service, to build the Green Line extension, that just adds pressure to the housing market here in the urban core. And so... Um, Transit's a big one. Oh, I just wanted to, to hop in. I didn't mean to, to break your flow here talking about issues that are important to you. But what about the argument that the Green Line extension is going to exacerbate gentrification and will play a role in diminishing the affordability of the areas that it's going to hit as opposed to improving affordability? I mean, is that just a function of timing or do you not buy that argument? I, no, I, I I totally recognize that that is that you know that that's a relevant factor. I mean, there there is added pressure um, when you expand transit, when you add the Green Line. I still don't think that's an excuse to stay stuck in you know the transit past. I think that what we need is to address issue number one, affordable housing, and to continue um, expanding transit 
um, improving transit. The Green Line extension, um, you know, really the state was ordered to build it in the year 1990. So we're going on three decades here now since that's happened. And then it has to be so much more than just building the Green Line. But um, I know Nadim and I have both been advocating for increases in affordable housing percentage, increases in linkage fees, um, direct investment in affordable housing. And so I think it has to be a build the green line, improve the red line, improve bus service, and ramp up affordable housing programs across the board. Can I say something that ties these two points, transportation and housing, together? I think as long as we are only tying the linkage fee from commercial development, high scale, high class commercial development, biopharmaceutical type of stuff, to payment into the affordable housing trust. And if we're only making 12%, and in the best case scenario, 20% of our new luxury housing, affordable housing with a capital A as part of a government program, um, we will always be fighting a losing battle. That means that real estate speculators, speculators, people who are taking a gamble on the market to make huge returns quickly, they will be holding the lever for affordable housing in our city, and so goes Cambridge, so goes all the cities that are struggling with this housing problem. We have got to stop treating housing as a speculative instrument in cities that have uh, a very low level of moderate and affordable uh, level housing, and we have got to have a trillion-dollar federal program for housing. It has to be a trillion dollars. It has to be a huge amount to alleviate the pressure we're seeing in major urban environments that we'll see in almost every state and that we can proportionately invest all over the country. Uh, We put $27 trillion into wars over the last couple of decades. We can definitely invest in infrastructure the way Clinton and and Sanders have said. We can definitely invest in housing the way no one is talking about. Let's say you end up, though, with a President Donald Trump and a Republican Senate and a Republican House. How does a city like Cambridge change the affordable housing framework in a way that can potentially actually get things done without getting that largesse from the feds? You know, I think if we're not going to have a federal program, we are going, we're already underwater putting a lot of Cambridge's largesse on the line. Cambridge is lucky to do as much as we do, and we're still losing the battle. So that should be a wake-up call for people from either party to say, hey, this market is a bubble, by the way. It is reliant on foreign speculation to increase its value over time, which is not a predictable uh, thing to be relying on. Um, and uh, it's not in the long term good for the health and quality of the economy, which is driven by the middle class and below. So, you know, for these reasons, we have to make an economic argument to both sides. And this is a type of spending that in the New Deal would have been obvious. So we got, and Peter, feel free to hop in here. You have uh, transportation, sorry, affordable housing as issue one, transportation as issue two. I think I hopped in and and got in the way maybe when you're going to rattle off issues three, four, and five. What else is important to you too, as Occupy alums now in mainstream Massachusetts politics? Well, um, there's a there's a number of issues. I mean, certainly the climate, sustainability, racial justice, education, and there's so many different pieces to education. Um, campaign finance reform. I've been really gratified. To, you know, we talked about the no money campaign a little earlier. Um, you know, I've been really gratified to see that at the time of Occupy, the idea of get money out of politics seemed like fairly a fringe issue. It really wasn't at the top of the list. And now, you know, we just witnessed the Bernie Sanders campaign when, you know, that was in the 10-second soundbite is get money out of politics. And so it's been gratifying to see that that issue um, really get on the radar. On the one hand, Bernie Sanders, uh, like Elizabeth Warren before him, has drawn increased attention to the, the question of money's influence in politics. But on the other hand, 
you didn't run as no money Mike the second time around. You ran as a more mainstream candidate when it comes to taking money from donors. So does that suggest that whatever purity you tried to achieve in your first campaign, totally trying to distance yourself from money uh, and political money, that that's not tenable when you decide you want to work within the established system as it is rather than as it should be? Uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think Bernie's campaign itself set this tremendous example for how uh, with small dollar donations, how you could advance a progressive platform and engage millions of people, particularly young people, um, in a big way. And, you know, the, the, the campaign we ran in 2012, the, the no money campaign, as we called it, you know, I was always really clear that that was sort of an experiment just to see as a baseline what would happen, what would the experience be. It was it was a really cool experience, but I think that when you're trying to reach voters, as we, we discussed a little earlier, when you're trying to connect with voters, you do need literature, you need uh, a staff to organize volunteers, and so um, I'm plenty comfortable running grassroots campaigns. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought at the time, I mean um... – Absolutely no snock intended. That's the you have lemons make lemonade school of politics. And uh, I think what Mike just said, the the small donations, you know, the was it twenty seven dollars? The the figure that Bernie Sanders used to keep that number seems away to at. ring a bell. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was a, a, a very powerful. That was a very powerful number. I'm not sure campaign finance is a way on the local level that people are going to go forward. I think if people practice what they preach and don't take big donations, you know, don't take uh, money that has influence tied to it, go forward. But, Mike, when when you get up at the State House, though, how do you think life will be under Bob DeLeo, who's in many ways he's a very old-fashioned FDR Democrat, I think, who is maybe unlike FDR, very pro small business. Now, small business to me is often a um, a euphemism on Beacon Hill for clamping down on reform and for not regulating things more intelligently. Uh, Any thoughts on that? Uh, It's a great question. I'm, you know, I'm certainly I'm still uh, a number of months away from uh, from the, the swearing in. But uh, my intention is to just proceed in the same sort of style that I've that I've adopted in Cambridge. One one of the things that I'd point to, and I had a great experience working with Nadim on this uh, a few years ago. I helped organize a campaign for the city of Cambridge to target zero carbon emissions in new buildings, and we actually drafted a zoning petition. We organized a coalition. And we brought this proposal forward. And initially, there there was a lot of pushback uh, from business community, from institutions in the city. Sort of, what are you trying to do? What does this mean? You know, uh, what you know, what will happen if, if this moves forward? And I'm really proud to say that you know, doing the sort of day in day out organizing, setting up meetings, bringing people together, um, we were able to bring really all of the leaders in the city together, get people on the same page find common ground and, and really redefine the city's sustainability policy. And so I think as a state representative, that that will be the model. I mean, it can't just be, I have this great idea and we have to do it now because that's not how government institutions work. It really will have to be a lot of listening, 
a lot of organizing um, and a lot of finding common ground to make progress. Nadine, Mike, just uh, trigger the thought um, what, uh, or a recognition on my part. Why is it that municipalities, localities appear to have so much more success with um, environmentally related issues than the federal government does? You know, I think as you go up the food chain from municipal, and Mike will see this at state and then all the way to federal, um, the system is known for being one of inertial dampening, one of inertial um, uh, challenges where you, you can much more easily kill something by a kind of social or political veto than you can get something through unless everyone's happy. Uh, and so the larger your, your body the more difficult it is because there's more people who can either socially or politically um, just step in your way and make things impossible. E- even the, the way the committee structures are structured or the, or the way that the, the speaker in a house like uh, you know, Massachusetts's house could have that much power. I, I, you know, I couldn't care less about Bob DeLeo's personal politics. There's no way any speaker should have that much power. It just doesn't make any sense. It's not productive. I have to say, for the record, I think I see soon-to-be member of Speaker DeLeo's chamber, uh, Mike Connolly. Were you nodding in agreement there with Nadine that no politician should have the power that Bob DeLeo does? Well, you know, um, certainly I haven't I haven't gotten there yet, but I think in the campaign, you know, I was very clear in, in my support for things like term limits, you know, and um, and I think that you know we've we've seen some frustration expressed from. From the state Senate side in particular, you know, some of the comments that have been made about um, the challenges with moving bills out of committee. I know that um, there were things that were passed this most recent session from the state Senate that um, didn't make it out of the House. And And do you know how the House members are defending themselves, by the way? They're saying, oh, let me tell you about the Senate. A a classic move that politicians do when they want to distract away from how society should be changing or they want to do the actual self-blame work that's necessary to become a better person. I'm blaming myself all the time because I'm failing all the time. And when the House is failing, the House has to come before its own voters and its own people and say, you're right, we failed. Stan pointed out some good things. Senate can improve on this. We can all improve on this. And let's do better next time. I heard none of that. What do you see as the next two years holding for Charlie Baker in the, the coming Democratic race against him? I'm I'm hoping it will it'll ramp up. You know, I was I was elected as a delegate to the uh, state Democratic Party convention uh, back in June, um, up in Lowell, and and I was disappointed that that the whole theme of the day seemed to be focused almost exclusively on the national level. And of course, that's important. But I was hoping to hear more about you know what what have the shortcomings of the Baker administration been. What's our agenda um, going into 2018 to hopefully uh, take back the governor's uh, position and did not hear any of that, really. And And not reflexively either, right? It's not like we're reflexively saying, let's get Baker out. You know, it's like this is an election that was lost by 30 some thousand votes or whatever. That's the size of the Muslim community in Massachusetts or the Arab community or the South Asian community or any community that doesn't vote regularly but is now beginning to. It's also the size – and the Republican Party obviously divorcing themselves entirely from minority voters – uh, and, and also at the same time, you have our revolution, which we talked about earlier, now feeding heavily into voter mobilization. It's going to be a very interesting um, uh, field two years from now. Well, you sound a little bit like John Walsh, who was a couple of weeks ago uh, said on the scrum that he, he sees Baker as being fragile. And he quoted that 30,000 figure. 
Um, that was then. This is now. Baker, you know, Baker has record high popularity. Now, I know that is going to decline. And as Walsh said, well, so did George Bush at one point. But he strikes me as a formidable candidate, not just in and of himself, but for what he represents, which is a, a, a sense that people, the voters, the, the middle class suburban voters don't trust Beacon Hill. And they elect Baker or the Republican Party to act as a bait, break on that. Now, tell me why I'm wrong. I would say for the couple of years ahead especially, but for the last decade or so, every major national election and a lot of state elections, including the Commonwealth, are a Democrat's elections to lose. And so that's going to be true however well Baker's doing. If we all show up, it's over. We just don't all show up. And I think... Elizabeth Warren will be on the ballot in two years. That's right. So hopefully that, you know, for the from the Democratic side, that'll help drive some turnout and uh, that might be a factor. I want Actually, to... sorry, Adam, I, that is a good point, her drawing power. So if, if uh, you guys are part of a virtuous cycle in which, uh, Mike, you ran in 2012 and then after running, you threw your weight behind Nadim, and along with other people, you helped to push Nadim over the top in 2013, and then he came back and helped you in 2016. Who else out there in, say, the Boston area is going to be a part of this slowly building momentum on the part of Occupy alums to get into mainstream politics? And, and before, is there anyone we should be looking for in the Boston City Council election, or heaven forbid, the mayor's race. Any thoughts on someone we should keep our eye on so we don't miss it like we missed your race, Mike? You know, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen in the mayor's race. Uh, there's certainly a number of people in in uh, Boston City Council I admire. There's new people, there's returning people, there's ascending people. And then there's Dan Coe, who, who I know personally and is, is kind of the mayor's right-hand man, chief of staff, who is amazing. So we can look over at Boston and see a lot of potential, a lot of great uh, talent on that side of the river. I would say Massachusetts-wide, what I'm seeing from people like Mike, I hope I embody the same trend, is that we want to train people who will be the next generation, whether that's young kids who are at school and we're visiting a classroom and saying civics, 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 and we're making the repeat performance, whether it is minority engagement, underrepresented at almost all levels of politics, um, women engagement, uh, and, and, and women civic leaders, and then... Uh, and then this idea that there are really altruistic public servants and you have to work really hard to distinguish them from the mainstream. Uh, people who are doing this out of a deep desire to see society better and to see it equitable are not an everyday type of politician. There's usually a little more ego, usually a little bit more calculation. And to have someone like Mike, to have someone like a lot of emerging leaders who are either flipping to this sincerity or are growing up with it is going to be a really special time for politics. Even when we disagree, it will be better for politics because we'll at least be able to debate. And I'm always comfortable in the chamber, which is, uh, and it happens often, losing a debate and then saying, here's where I stood and I stood soundly. And when I lost, at least we were able to communicate both sides with the other, one side with the other, that... Um, that we treated each other fairly, and that at least even this bad outcome is better than if we had squabbled or tanked it or done some other compromise that's not good for anyone. Sure. I'd, I'd echo all of what Nadim said, and, and certainly um, 
I think I've I've learned a lot from Nadim as well. Just sort of the uh, the ethos that he's brought to community organizing in Cambridge has really been spectacular. And um, I don't know if I can throw out any names. Yeah, I've, we need I've, names. Well, I mean, I've, I've this obviously is a utilitarian been... <laughs> exercise at yeah. this point. For I've us. got some names, but you're gonna have to wait a little bit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you I mean, until I've... we're off the air. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, no, well, no. I was well, well, one, I mean, guy. people. I don't want to call anyone out without telling them in advance. But the point is, I think there's people not just in Cambridge but all over the state who are beginning to reach out and saying, "Hey, I want to go for this." And I think when they do. Um, we're going to see that same altruism I was talking about. These people are distinguished by a compulsion to serve. Absolutely. You should write a piece for WGBHnews.org. I'm dead serious, saying here are five people to watch, seven people to watch, you know, three people who I hope make the leap and run for public office. Mm-hmm. I think this is the first time I've ever tried to commission a piece on a podcast. Very artful. And the pay is amazing. I'm sure. So, oh, yeah. I'm sure. I've heard about public television and I've heard about journalism in general. Well, my, our, our pay scale is not unlike Mike's first campaign, but let's move on. <laughs> Let, let's move on from that. Uh, Mike, I think you were finishing up saying something and I started hassling oh, you yeah. for, for actual names. I was uh, just going to give a shout out to uh, some of the great organizations who are helping to support candidates, certainly uh, – Mass Alliance in Progressive Massachusetts, um, they do trainings. I've, I've participated in some of their campaign trainings. And so I learned um, all sorts of different skills around canvassing, organizing a campaign. Um, certainly there's the Emerge program uh, here in Massachusetts, which does great work. Um, and, of course, Our Revolution, we mentioned them earlier. They're certainly um, rolling out the carpet and, and inviting people to um, run for office and, and try to engage them for support as well. And so I think that um, – and, and that's sort of what Nadim does every day in Cambridge is really engage uh, new leaders, people who want to get involved, who want to run for office. Um, so I think we're doing a lot of that work right now, and I think that there's so many different resources for people um, to activate you two are so sanguine that that I'm guessing that well actually I'm not sure about this because Nadim you were talking about the the importance of a third party earlier on but from the way you're talking here it it doesn't sound to me like either of you think a third party will be necessary for progressive Demo- uh, Democrats to make their voices heard in the the you know political status quo am I wrong about that no I think I think you're right and I'm I'm on the Democratic State Committee so I probably shouldn't be talking too much about a third party I think in a state like Massachusetts we could actually do some of the stuff that that um, Mike has has proven out that I think in some ways some of our counselors have proven out you can bring. Um, a similar message, but attack issues in a way that is maybe more impactful, or at least the the collegiality of the body and the the productiveness of the body can can evolve. Um, and so I think Democrats will be successful here. In a lot of places in this country, either Democrats aren't doing well, or they need to engage more minorities to begin doing well, uh, or a third party is needed just to feed these parties with a little life and a little altruism. Um, because, again, sometimes we're playing politics and damage control or or uh, sailing into the last four weeks of a race and waiting out the clock or something when people want engagement. Engagement is what builds communities. Peter Kansas, anything else? Adam, I, th- I think what we're listening to here is uh, Mike and the Dean represent uh, yet more of a new political generation, a generation characterized by people like Michelle Wu. Um, And I think it's pretty refreshing. There it is. All right. I guess uh, we'll leave it there. 
Mike Connolly, thank you. And again, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thanks uh, for having us. And Nadine Mazin, thanks for coming in and chatting with us. Thank you. And that is going to do it for this episode of The Scrum. Thanks to Mike Connolly and Nadine Mazin for talking with me and Peter. And as always, thanks to you for pressing play and sticking around. You can subscribe to The Scrum on iTunes and rate us if you're feeling charitable or even if you're not. You can also find us on the various podcatchers that are kicking around out there. And you can always find new and back episodes online at blogs.wgbh.org scrum. We'd also love to hear from you directly. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or catch us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam and Peter is at Kansas. Our producer is Jason Tureski. Our engineer for this episode was Doug Sugartz. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Mm-hmm.